When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Recycle by Eurosport, the podcast that takes you on a grand tour of the greatest stories in cycling history. Brought to you by Zwift, where fun is fast. Written by Felix Lowe, narrated by me, Graham Wilgos, and produced by Pete Burton. In this episode of Recycle, we go right the way back to the 1910 edition of Milan San Remo. Eugène Christophe braved freezing temperatures, severe snowstorms, and even wore the wrong trousers on the Paso del Turquino as he battled to victory. Only six other riders finish what is still referred to as the hardest day's racing in cycling history. The fourth edition of Milan San Remo is what the snow-shortened 2013 edition of La Classicissima might have looked like had it taken place outside the extreme weather protocol and around one century earlier. That is to say that the snow blizzard blighted 1910 edition was unique and unequivocally of its time. No race since has come remotely close, nor ever will. Bernard Eno's win in Neige Baston Neige in 1980, Charlie Gaul on Monte Bondone in 1958, Eddie Merckx on Trecime de Lavaredo in 1968, Andy Hampston's goggles on the Gavia in 1988. They were all a mere dusting of the white stuff by comparison. Where snowfall on the Paso del Turquino forced the riders of the 2013 edition to bypass the climb in the comfort of heated buses, slashing 50 kilometres from the route, their counterparts in 1910 were sent up what the eventual winner would describe as the pass of death. Here, riders were seen swigging neat brandy, swallowing eggs and chewing on grass to stave off fatigue as snow and freezing winds engulfed those who had not already given up. After taking refuge in a mountain hut and borrowing a new pair of trousers from the owner, Frenchman Eugène Christophe eventually rolled over the finish in San Remo, almost 12 and a half hours after setting off from Milan. It was a marathon that La Gazzetta called, not a race as such, but a demonstration of the specialist qualities needed to fight against the fury of the elements. It's a hell of a story, says David Gannel, a French cycling expert whose recent book recounts the life of Christophe's contemporary Lucien Petit-Breton, winner of the first edition of Milan San Remo in 1907. The fourth edition of Milan San Remo was probably the toughest bike race ever, he continues. Christophe needed six months to recover, 
Think Eno after Liège in 1980, but worse. The Frenchman was the first of only four official finishers. The three others who crossed the line later were disqualified for hitching lifts in cars or taking trains. With the snow so thick that the riders were forced to push their bikes up the Turquino, you could hardly blame them. It just sounds like the maddest race ever in terms of weather, says Peter Cousins, author of The Monuments. The riders were completely unprepared for what they were doing, riding in wool jerseys and shorts with nothing to protect them from the elements. Here is the story of a day the likes of which we will never again witness in pro cycling. Born in the Parisian suburb of Malakoff in 1885, Eugène Christophe was a French cyclocross champion best known today for being the first person to wear the Tour de France's yellow jersey. That was nine years after his Milan San Remo heroics, and six years after he entered cycling folklore when breaking his forks on the Col du Tourmalet, resulting in his now famous trip to the forge. From his tight shorts to his trademark long moustache, Christophe took a maniacal care in his appearance, something that earned him the nickname the Rooster. His adventurous spirit saw him abandon his professions of blacksmith and working 60 hours a week in a sawmill after witnessing the first Tour de France in 1903. Three years later, he was one of 78 riders who took to the start line in the Tour, eventually coming ninth. He was renowned for his methodical care and tidiness. Not only did this mean his workshop was a treasure trove of souvenirs from his time as a racer, but also that he kept a detailed diary describing every stage or race he took part in, down to his impressions, results, and expenses. Christophe's now legendary account of his Milan San Remo debut in 1910 was reproduced some days later in Miroir des Sports magazine and forms the backbone of all that we know about that hellish race. In 2013, the same year that Snow put the brakes on the 104th edition of Milan San Remo, the French sports writer Jean Paul Ray published a book about Christophe's life. Le Damne de la Hout, loosely translated as The Cursed Rider, is the result of meticulous research, archive scouring, and a detailed study of Christophe's personal documents, including his own race diaries. But it is also, it must be stressed, a fictionalized first person account. For instance, the chapter that covers the narrator's refusal to give in to the cataclysmic conditions on the Turquino contains material that was not mentioned in the Miroir des Sports piece, material that Peter Cosins did not have at his disposal when writing his book, The Monuments. It's weird reading that Ray text, he explains. I'm always really suspicious of cycling history books by French authors because they're so inclined to make things up and put words into people's mouths. You think, how much of this is accurate here? Or is it completely made up? Maybe 50% made up? I'm guessing he pieced it together from all the reports. I know he had access to all Christophe's diaries, perhaps newspaper cuttings. The first-hand account must have come from somewhere else. I'm guessing the French illustrated sports magazine La Vie au Grand Air, or something like that. Probably not Lotto, the paper behind the tour but it must have been a magazine like that. Christophe's account of the 1910 Milan San Remo was filtered through many contemporary books on cycling and also forms a chapter in Les Woodland's Cycling's 50 Craziest Stories. 
The Frenchman was not, however, given much time to prepare for his career-moulding triumph. Just a week after finishing on the podium in Paris-Roubaix, Christophe was told by Alphonse Bourges, his manager at the French Alcyon team, that he would be trying his hand at Milan-San Remo. The weather had been good at the start of the week, but had deteriorated as the day approached. On the eve of the race, Christophe did a recon of the first part of the route with teammate Gustave Garajou, the skinny climber who had finished runner-up three years earlier in the first official edition. The weather was so bad that they only managed the opening 30 kilometres of the 289-kilometre route. Reports came in of expected snow on the Turquino overnight. Christophe's French teammates joked that this would favour him and Octave Lapise, another accomplished cyclocross rider on the Alcyon team. With rain and biting wind also forecast on the approach to the Apennines, there was talk of the race being cancelled. These foul conditions meant that only 71 riders out of the 256 who had registered for the race turned up at the start line at 6am on April 3rd, 1910. Among them was defending champion Luigi Ganna of Italy and 1908 winner Cyril van Howert of Belgium, another Alcyon teammate of Christophe's. Confirmation of heavy snow falling on the Turquino ensured that a further eight riders didn't even start the race. The peloton was made up of only 63 riders as it edged out of Milan. The white dusty roads had turned to mud and frozen sludge, requiring the skills of an acrobat to negotiate at high speed. Despite these conditions, the circus covered a lot of ground at a seemingly unsustainable pace. We had to bounce along in the ruts, riding on the verges between the posts that were spaced every 20 metres as far as Pavia, Christophe later said in his account. We rode the first 32 kilometres in 56 minutes, the 53 kilometres from Milan to Volguera in an hour and 50 minutes. There was attack after attack, and it was more like a Corse de Prime, a points race, than it was a long-distance race. Christophe stuck to the back wheel of his teammate Ernest Paul, a stage winner in the previous Tour de France and half-brother of the then-current Tour champion Francois Faber. As they approached the foot of the Turquino, the freezing rain and hail turned to snow. Nowadays, the Paso del Turquino, 26 kilometers long but just 532 meters high, has very little impact on the outcome of Milan-San Remo. Long gone is the era where a classy rider such as Fausto Coppi could see the long grind as a springboard for solo success on the Lingurian coast. The significance of the Turquino has gone now, says Cosins. Apart from the fact that it takes some juice out of people's legs, it's not even a hard climb for them anymore. Today, Milan-San Remo is ridden very differently. You have to survive until the Poggio, get over that, then, if you're anywhere near the front, you have a chance of winning. In Cosin's long career as a cycling journalist, he has only once covered the first monument of the season on site, in 2013, the year the inclement spring weather saw the riders bundled into buses to bypass the snow. I remember driving up on the motorway parallel to the Turquino Pass and wondering, in my rented Fiat Uno, whether I was going to make it to the top, because the snow was coming down so hard, he recalls. Back to 1910, and Christophe was riding with his compatriot Paul ahead of the climb, 
the two prepared to let the others speed ahead while riding at their own pace for self-preservation. At the feed zone of Avada, they had seen their Flemish teammate Van Howert, who had held a three-minute gap, warming his hands on a bowl of tea. They also learned that Lapise had refused to continue, despite riding with Ganna in a chase group behind Van Howert, because he felt the Turquino was impassable. In the hours that followed, my mind often returned to that steaming mug of tea warming Van Howard's hands, and I regretted not taking Lapise's lead, Christophe says in Jean-Paul Ray's fictionalised version of events. It's a nice line. Did Christophe think it? We'll never know. Maybe. The clouds closed in, and the temperature plummeted. The snow made turning the pedals harder, and many riders opted to walk while shouldering their bikes. Christoph soon dropped Paul and continued his pursuit of Ganna and Van Howard in the Dante-esque conditions. Through the gloom, he soon saw the unmistakable shape of Ganna, the defending champion. His whiskers had turned into a thicket of frost, Christoph said via the probably embellished pen of Ray. He was so close to total exhaustion that he couldn't even look at me. I couldn't believe my eyes. This gave me an injection of heat and I suddenly forgot the cold, the snow, the wind and pushed harder on my pedals. Rather than thinking about winning the race, Christoph was now in survival mode. Soon after dropping Ganna, he himself came to a standstill. Ray has him musing how he later heard that other riders had urinated in their palms or directly into their trousers to warm up their legs. Not inconceivable, given the conditions. We were no longer men, but animals, the Frenchman said, on the brink of capitulation. Returning to Christophe's actual version of events, and the 25-year-old spoke of his rigid fingers, numb feet, stiff legs. I was shaking continuously, so I began walking and running to get my circulation back. It was bleak, and the wind was making a low moaning noise. I'd have felt scared if I hadn't been used to bad weather in cyclocross races. What kept him going was the thought that if Ganna had not managed to rejoin him, that meant the Italian was also suffering just as much, if not more. Van Howert, meanwhile, had reached the summit, apparently passing two bemused skiers on his way up. Christoph battled on to the top before taking refuge in the old railway tunnel. He asked an unfortunate soigneur who was stationed at the summit how far behind he was. Ray had him raising fingers which Christoph interprets as either six minutes or six riders, the latter ending his chances of victory in his mind's eye. Other accounts have the gap at ten minutes. In any case, it was apparently not long until he encountered Van Howard, the so-called Wolf of Flanders, with a cloak draped over his back, pushing his bike. He told me he was packing it in, Christoph later said. I was beyond feeling happy about that, and I just got on with going down through the snow. The view was totally different now. The snow made the countryside beautiful. The sky was clear. The pendulum swung, and soon it was Christoph who was in difficulty, this time with stomach cramps brought on by pushing his bike in the sections where the snow was eight inches deep. He resorted to shouting at the top of his voice. He then collapsed onto a rock on the side of the road, fearing that his race was over. What happens next is not wholly clear mirroring the confusion that must have reigned amid the continuing blizzard. Ray's account has Christoph joining forces with the ghost of Van Howard. 
With a stalactite of frost dangling from his moustache, the Belgian had apparently lost his shoes, which had stuck to the bottom of a frozen pothole. He was unable to utter a word, dead on his feet. He tried to speak through his blue lips, but it was just noise. Christoph might have still been in possession of his shoes, but his trousers had sank to his thighs because of the snow. He also had no feeling in his fingers. Soon, they were joined by Paul, the latter having returned to the fold despite crossing the summit some 19 minutes behind. They walked together in silence, in retreat, like Napoleon's army from Russia. It was Berezina all over again, Ray's version of Christoph muses, referring to the French emperor's infamous defeat in the winter of 1812. The three leaders got back on their bikes and tackled the descent with mixed success, Christoph edging clear to open up a lead. He started to think about what winning such a race might do for his career. I blotted out the pain and thought about getting to San Remo first, he said. I thought of my contract with the bike factory. I'd be able to double my wages if I won, and there'd be another 300 francs in prize money. While dreaming of glory, he suddenly spotted a man who urged him to stop and pointed to the smoking chimney of a nearby house. He led me to what was a tiny inn. The landlord undressed me and wrapped me in a blanket. I murmured aqua calda and pointed at the bottles of rum. I did some physical exercises and started to get some feeling back in my body. I wanted to go on, but the patron wouldn't hear of it and pointed to the snow still falling outside. Not long after, First Van Howert and then Ernest Paul came in. They were so frozen, they put their hands in the flames. Ernest Paul had lost a shoe without noticing. The question of who lost a shoe, Van Howert or Paul, underlines the need for the pinch of salt with which Cousins takes Ray's fictionalised account. Ray had Christoph stating that it was the Belgian who encountered this problem, while the eventual winner's official account attributed this plight to Paul. Perhaps they both did. Either way, it's safe to assume that the two of them were a sorry sight when they entered the inn, and they had worked up quite an appetite. Cousins describes Van Howert as this strapping, typically Belgian type of bloke, a beast on a bike who didn't speak a word of anything but Flemish and would eat everything that was put in front of him. In this instance, the innkeeper rustled up an omelette. Van Howert ate voraciously, having made up his mind that he would not be getting back on his bike. After 25 minutes, and with the innkeeper preparing some dessert, Christoph, still caught between two worlds and monitoring the road from his stool, detected some movement. I saw four riders go by, or at least four piles of mud. I decided to press on. Both Paul and Van Howert said he was a lunatic, while the innkeeper was reluctant to let him go. Christoph assuaged their fears by promising he would only descend to Voltry, from where he would seek medical assistance or catch the train to San Remo. Before leaving, he took some dry clothes, most notably a new pair of trousers to replace his own ruined pair. The race was back on. The four Italian leaders were Pierino Albini, Giovanni Cocchi, Eberardo Pavesi and that man Ganna, the winner of the first Giro d'Italia in 1909, whom Cosins describes as a complete fiend on the bike. Invigorated by his break and in his new trousers, Christoph caught Cocchi and Pavesi before the end of the descent, 
the latter throwing in the towel at Voltry, penultimate feed zone. While pursuing the two remaining riders up the road, Christophe heard a car horn toot behind him. Here, as the Frenchman's manager Alphonse Bourges rejoined his rider on the road, Ray takes things up with a bit of poetic license. What the hell are you doing, Cree Cree? Ray has Bourges shouting to his rider, using another of his nicknames. Where are Ernest Paul and the wolf? I thought you guys were in the lead. We waited for you, but saw nothing. You can't talk, Christophe replied. We almost died on the Turquino. Where were you when we needed you? It turned out that the Alcyon manager and his driver were following the Italians on the climb, whom they suspected of foul play. They saw Ganna place his bike on the Atala team car and hitch a lift by standing on the sideboard. When Christophe catches the leaders, Borge told him he must not stick with them, but ride straight past because they were clearly on their last legs. At this point, and once again this is a wholly unverifiable account, likely just added to inject a bit of colour, Ray has Christophe ask Borge to find him another pair of trousers. The ones he borrowed from the innkeeper were too big. On the edge of the town of Aranzano, Christophe caught Ganna and then Albini, both of whom were unable to latch on. There was still 120 kilometres to go until the finish, but Christophe felt the victory was in his grasp. At the final checkpoint of Savona, where the lone leader enjoyed a slice of Gruyere cheese, another Ray flourish, his advantage was a whopping 15 minutes on Ghana and a further 11 minutes on Albini. He swapped bikes, taking one that had belonged to his teammate Louis Tresselier. At the control point of Savona, everyone was astonished to see me alone, Christophe later wrote. The crowd didn't know me. I didn't stop long and took Tresselier's spare bike because I knew he and Garajou had abandoned before Ivada. I was sure of my victory, and with only 100 kilometers to go, I felt a new strength. The idea of crossing the line brought back all my energy. The advantage was large, but that's not to say Christophe did not have any concerns. First, his trousers sagged so much they kept on exposing his backside to the elements. They also regularly became entangled in his chain. Then there was the fear of getting lost, with the carpet of snow making the countryside indistinguishable. You can follow the road along the coast pretty easily now, but I imagine back in those days it wasn't hard to get lost or to wander off up a back street, not realising where you were going, says Cosins. Before you know it, you're climbing up the Poggio without it yet being on the race route. With Borges having dropped back to ensure Ganna wasn't up to any tricks, a local man on a bike came to Christophe's aid, riding with him for 20 kilometres and making sure he stuck to the right road to San Remo. Approaching the town, he had to cross numerous level crossings, and each time he asked the train guard to help pull up his trousers. He eventually cut them down to shorts with a borrowed knife and tightened them around his waist with some string. Christophe finished the race in 12 hours and 24 minutes although he was not 100% sure of his victory because he thought he'd taken a wrong turn outside San Remo. With an average speed of just 23 kilometers per hour, it remains, to date, the slowest edition in the race's history. I got to San Remo well behind the scheduled time, he recalled. It was 6pm when I stopped underneath the blowing banner that showed the end of my cavalry. To this statement, Ray's Christoph cutely adds, but above all, the start 
of my career. Further flights of fancy come not from Ray, but an Italian journalist called Luca Pulsoni in a piece that featured in LA magazine in 2018. According to this account, after crossing the line, Christoph warmed himself up by drinking a coffee or two. Suddenly, Pulsoni writes, he sees a beautiful woman, and it's the classic love at first sight. They lock eyes and share a few provocative smiles, and his moustache, that seductive weapon of his, takes another victim. The two find themselves in the woman's room and make love. Here, Paulsoni has the audacity to attribute the following quote to Christophe. I would have taken her away with me and married her on the spot for her beauty alone. But this was no love story. There was a price for everything, and the winner of Milan San Remo finds himself having to pay for his triste with his Alcyon jersey and a spare tyre. Or perhaps the whole scene was imagined, and those items were what Christoph used to pay the barman for his coffee while his mind strayed. Who knows? The mystery grows greater with every retelling. In any case, having supposedly saddled up again after 12 hours on the road, Paulsoni's Christoph returns to the finish line where there was still no sign of his opponents. Not wishing to speculate on Christoph's staying power, but the story is certainly, temporarily speaking, possible. For the next rider to cross the line was indeed Ghana, just 40 minutes in arrears. Quizzed about the likelihood of such a climax to the race, Cosins admits that it's surely an embellishment. It's certainly not something he came across while researching the history of Milan San Remo for the monuments. Judging from the stuff I've read, Cosins says, Christoph was so cold that even taking a bath caused him to scream out in pain. I can't imagine that he had the ability to bed anyone apart from himself. Ganna might have crossed the line second, but he was later disqualified for that episode with the car. Cocky was awarded second place one hour and one minute later, 16 minutes before Giovanni Marchese. Another Italian, Enrico Sala, arrived just over two hours behind for fourth place. Cosins reports in The Monuments that two other Italians were disqualified, one for taking a train between Pavia and Novi Ligure early in the race and a rider called Sante Joy, who finished outside the time limit. Presumably, the Italians Albini and Pavese never made it to San Remo. Some reports had Van Howart coming fourth, while others included him in the list of disqualified riders. In Ray's account, Christophe is thawing out with Garajou, who had taken the train to the finish after abandoning on the Turquino, in the bath in the Molinari Hotel when Borge, his manager, burst into the bathroom, crying, Here are your trousers. Not soon enough, Christophe replied. Look at my bloody backside. Did you break down or what? Borge then explained how they had become embroiled in an argument with Ganna and his director sportif after they spotted the Italian hitching another lift on the approach to San Remo. This would perhaps explain how the defending champion managed to recover enough to take second place. The winner, however, was given something of the cold shoulder from his French teammates, most of whom complained that what Christophe had won did not actually qualify as a bike race. When Cricri was invited to a special banquet the next night, they complained bitterly because they wanted to return to Paris. 
What will we do while he peacocks around town all day? Ray has the mask in La Damna de la Hoot. Only Van Howart, in his broken French, congratulated his teammate. And when Christophe caved in and turned down the invite to the party, it was the Flemish former winner who told him that he had made a mistake, showing him his golden watch which he had received as a prize two years before. By the time Christophe had changed his mind about the banquet, it was too late. The hosts had made other arrangements. As for Ernest Paul, the other rider who had taken refuge in the inn, he was apparently so distraught and ashamed at having thrown in the towel that he insisted his contract was torn up. The next day's edition of La Gazzetta dello Sport led with the cell A blizzard of rain and wind wreaks havoc among the competitors. Christophe at the head of the few survivors. The editorial of co-founder Eugenio Costamagna read The fourth edition of Milan-San Remo was not a race as such, but a demonstration of resistance of the human fibres that reveal the specialist qualities needed to fight against the fury of the elements. It continued, Just one man, blessed undoubtedly with a certain amount of extra substance, withstood all the pitfalls, every brutal expression of nature at its most violent. He is a Frenchman, a son of the great Latin race, a strong man whom lovers of the sport must recall with admiration. His performance exemplifies the battle between man and furious nature on this appalling day. According to Ray's account, the Italian press also came up with this eulogy of the winner. It appears that Christophe is one of those men whom nothing can topple, who push on to the death and who know how to overcome all suffering, every physical and mental hardship, every difficulty thrown at him, as long as there's a chance of a little glory at the end of a debauchery of effort, which, for some, was considerably more than others. He is, in short, a man of steel. So, what happened next? Alcyon did indeed double Christophe's salary, but his breakthrough win came at a cost. It took the Frenchman a month in hospital to recover from frostbite to his hands and further bodily damage from the bitter cold. And it took another six months before he recovered to his original health and two years before he was competitive again. Two years without success, miserably trailing along at the back of the peloton, he would later say. Christophe seemed back to his best for the Tour de France in 1912, which he came close to winning after three consecutive triumphs in the Alps, including the longest solo breakaway ever at 315 kilometres. A year later, he gained notoriety for that fork breaking on the descent of the Tourmalet. After trudging 10 kilometres down to Sainte Marie de Campagne, he did the repairs himself in a smithy's forge, only to be penalised further because he'd allowed a boy to pump the bellows, an action deemed as outside assistance. On two other occasions, a broken fork denied Christophe when he was in a commanding position to win the Tour, making him one of the most unfortunate riders in the race's history. The first came in 1919, when Christophe, who had become the first man to wear the fabled maillot jaune, lost the jersey on the penultimate day. The second, was in the Pyrenees in 1922 and resulted in him having to borrow a bike from a priest. Ray certainly got one thing right. Christoph was indeed cursed. 
On balance, however, it was Christoph's first pro win in the blizzard on the road to San Remo that made all this possible. The circumstances of that epic triumph in 1910 also helped cement the burgeoning reputation of Milan-San Remo, which, over time, would become one of the biggest one-day races in the calendar and one of the five classics to attain monument status. Two more French wins followed. Gustave Garigou in 1911 and Henri Pellissier in 1912, leading to one French newspaper making the catty quip that even a mediocre French rider can beat the Italians. In 1913, Belgium's Odélie de Frey became the first reigning Tour de France champion to take to the start, cementing the race's status when he promptly went on to win, having predicted he'd do just that. But the joke was soon on him. He would never again win anything major in his career. There followed a period of Italian domination that lasted until the middle of the 1950s, during which time those champions of champions Costante Girardengo, Gino Bartoli and Fausto Coppi won the race 13 times between them. But never again did anyone win Milan-San Remo in quite the same way as Eugène Christophe in 1910. Did the Frenchman's victory come in the toughest race of all time? It's impossible to tell especially given there exist so few pictures of the events that day. Vintage cycling specialist David Gainel, however, believes it did. He puts it in the same bracket as the opening stage of the 1914 Giro d'Italia, stage 14 of the 1919 Tour de France, Paris Tours in 1921, stage 10 of the 1926 Tour de France, or the third stage of the infamous tour of the battlefields that took place in northern France after the First World War. It was certainly far worse, he says, than Eno's 1980 snowstorm victory in Liège-Baston-Liège, after which the Badger suffered for many years with a lack of feeling in his hands and a gammy knee. I'm not a big fan of the precautionary spirit that rules our lives today. Gainel says on cycling's extreme weather protocol, which saw the Turquino taken out of the 2013 edition of Milan-San Remo because of snow. I think, in the case of bad weather, we should let the riders decide if they want to keep going or quit, especially in classic races. Organisers, the UCI and team managers, just don't want to take any risk, which is viewed as evil in modern society. But in my opinion, what makes cycling so unique and its history so amazing and beautiful is precisely these moments, where riders like Eugène Christophe were pushed beyond their limits. It's sad to think that to experience such a race as the 1910 Milan-San Remo again, we can only open history books, or, if we're lucky, re-watch old footage. This has been another episode of Recycle by Eurosport, brought to you by Zwift, where fun is fast. Written by Felix Lowe and narrated by me, Graham Wilgos. Produced by Pete Burton and edited by Ola Fisayo. You can read more from Felix on Twitter at Saddleblaze and you can find me at Graham Wilgos. Plus, you can find Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK or you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Please do subscribe, share and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And join us for our next episode when we retell the tale of Audrey van der Poel's victory at the 1986 Tour of Flanders.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.